0: Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world.
1: Hello and welcome. My name is Giorgio, and I'm a senior associate in the energy practice at Global Council. Today, we'll be discussing the energy prices crisis, its origins geography, implications for industry, and most importantly, what to expect from governments addressing the issue in Europe and beyond. Joining me are three distinguished colleagues across the Global Council Office. We have Laila Hassan-Smith, a senior associate in our London office covering UK politics and policy. Ahmed Helal, a practice lead in our MENA region, currently based in New York. And last but not least, also Frederick Michel, who is an associate in our Central and Eastern Europe practice and following Russia. Thank you all for making the time and welcome. Let's begin by defining what this crisis really is. So during the global pandemic last year, prices went down because of lower demand and higher renewable energy fit in. But gas prices in particular have recently climbed because of the global recovery from actually COVID-19, which has in turn driven up uh, electricity prices and retail prices as well. That was aggravated by low wind and lower than expected gas. Imports. So the current situation is a combination of a number of different factors, and high energy prices are affecting and consumers as well as actually businesses. With energy companies uh, being pushed out of the market in the UK because of price caps, blackouts in China, and manufacturing companies having to shut down operations because of too high prices and shortage of raw materials. In the European Union in particular, governments has been scrambling to address the the crisis. And that sometimes led to uncoordinated measures affecting also competition in the energy market. Um, The European Commission on this released yesterday a much-awaited communication on measures member states can implement to address high prices, which are consistent with the EU internal energy market. Um, We'll get to Europe much more in detail later, but on this background, I'm going to turn to Laila, who has been following closely the reactions of the UK government over the past few weeks
0: great thanks georgio and i think that really kind of sets it in context in the uk and i think the thing to say about the uk is that industry leaders from energy intensive um sectors have been really quite vocal about high costs being a threat to their business they are not protected by the price cap that exists only in the domestic market and in some cases um when we're talking about energy intensive sectors this means that 40% of their overall operating costs are energy. But what is interesting is that the UK government was initially quite reluctant to intervene. They weren't in favour of extending the price cap to non-domestic areas, which is what a lot of the sector was kind of arguing for. And their view was that many of the companies that were kind of impacted were already being quite heavily subsidised, particularly in areas like steel and ceramics, because of kind of competitive pressures elsewhere, but over time, the business department have really realized that these, if these sectors are kind of forced to restrict operations, it's gonna really augment the existing problems in supply chains in the UK, which we've already kind of seen play out through petrol shortages and kind of concerns about food on the shelves. Because of these HVB driver shortages, and other raw material shortages, the impact is really gonna look quite significant Um, And I think there was also a bit of a lack of understanding that some of the sectors that were particularly impacted are the ones that sort of produce the raw materials that underlay many of the UK's kind of wider supply chains. So I think the business department has sort of gradually come around to the idea that you've got to do something on this. But the Treasury remains really reluctant to give away subsidies or look like they're kind of giving handouts. So you've kind of had this emerging row over last weekend between the business department and the treasury about how and what funding is announced now looks like the treasury will provide support in maybe the form of loans with conditions attached and that this could be allocated at the forthcoming spending review which is the big kind of fiscal event um, at the end of at the end of the month that the condition that they're arguing for is in these sectors fine. We will offer some loans, but they will have stringent conditions and particularly around dividends and bosses bonuses. So they'll have to prove that this is value for money. And then there's a separate conversation going on longer term about how the UK government makes its generation mix much less reliant on gas. The interesting thing is whether that's then cut across by a kind of wider um, sort of medium term argument that actually what the UK should really be doing is investing in gas storage, which is something that they really haven't done to the same extent of um, the European um, countries in the European Union. So there's a kind of still a medium to long term way that this will play out. But I think we're seeing kind of the culmination of it probably in the spending review at the end of the month.
1: Yeah, so thank you very much. Laila, I I think there's lots of very interesting points that you brought up. Uh, I just mentioned two before we turn to Ahmed. Um, And I think it's very interesting to compare, in particular, how the UK government um, has been reacting to the situation with what the different member states and the European Commission in the European Union have done. Uh, And I think. Yesterday, in the communication on energy prices, the commission had, on the one side, really pushed, in actuality, member states to really support both the end consumers as well as businesses. Um, Of course, within the boundaries of the state aid regulatory framework, uh, which is pretty strict in the European Union, but... The other thing that, of course, the European Commission can't do is impose to the different member states anything with respect to their actual um, energy mix. So this is really one of the things that uh, uh, the Commission can't do. However, the current discussion on high energy prices will definitely also um, lead to other uh, more intense Conversations on the role of a gas and B actually nuclear in the future of the European Union. So we'll get to that uh, a bit uh, later. But uh, I wanted to turn to Ahmed, um, who's been following and who who follows for our clients uh, the Gulf area in in particular. And I wanted to ask you, Ahmed, it's, I think it's fair to say that oil and gas companies have been profiting from soaring energy prices, Um, but is the current high prices environment seen as an opportunity to further fund energy, energy transition projects in the Gulf? Or does it risk worsening the region's dependence on hydrocarbons?
2: So thanks, thanks, Giorgio. Uh, interesting that we started with a UK perspective because actually in, in Qatar, where Global Council has a regional office, uh, the UK used to be a top customer, top buyer of Qatari uh, liquefied natural gas, uh, but uh, has been less so in recent years because m- many of the, the, the gas shipments are now sailing east. Uh, where the fast-growing Asian economies have really intense demand for for natural gas to power their industries, and now the UK is a little bit less stranded uh, because they haven't they haven't been signing up to these long-term uh, purchase contracts with the large producers like Qatar, like the UK, uh, uh, like Russia, excuse me. But on, on the Gulf specifically, um, you know, the, the, these price dynamics basically pull the Gulf states in in two directions. On one hand. Um, this is a moment. They see this. This is a moment to replenish their coffers and restore balance to their finances that were really battered by the COVID-19 induced uh, energy price crash uh, last year. If you if you pick any of the major oil producers in OPEC, Kuwait, Saudi. Uh, uh uae uh 80 to 90 percent of central government revenues are accounted for by oil and gas exports so clearly this is a windfall uh for them these these sky high prices and uh is 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 healthy uh from a very from from a purely fiscal perspective on the other hand it's also uh, it frees up uh, resources for investments in, in diversifying the energy mix primary energy uh domestically uh uh, specifically on on uh, solar and clean tech and and merging areas of, of 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 renewables such as blue hydrogen production and green hydrogen production, uh, this the UAE and Saudi, for instance, are vying to be uh, powerhouses in 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 bringing down the price of that fuel so it, it's competitive uh, uh, in the future. Um, uh, so, so uh, overall, very healthy from a, from a, from a fiscal perspective and, and the oil and gas companies in the region have been, have been benefiting. But to your question on the addiction to hydrocarbons, uh, you know, Gulf states obviously very, very dependent on those two commodities. And they realize that electrification, decarbonization is here to stay. It's the trend of the future. Um, but they also recognize that the world economy simply can't flip a switch and do away with the dependence on, on, on fossil fuels uh, to generate the electricity that's needed to power electric vehicles to clean up industries like, like steel and construction uh, the, that, are, that are polluting highly polluting industries. So each of these states simply wants to be the last man standing. They want the last barrel of oil, the last gas shipment to come to sail out from Saudi Arabia, from Qatar, from UAE, from Kuwait, um, uh, and and to dig this resource out of the ground while they can, while the prices are still competitive. So uh, this moment only incentives incentivizes them further to to invest in, in you know to do capital expenditure to increase. The capacity of oil and gas. Um, uh, I'll give you Qatar as an example since that's close to home for Global Council. Uh, they're betting on a 50 billion dollar expansion of their liquefied natural gas industry because they see it as, as it, it is seen as the cleaner of the dirty fuels. Uh, it is less, uh, uh, less carbon intensive than the others uh, and uh, it is perceived as a, uh, as a bridge fuel to a, to a greener future. Uh, a last point on the pricing of, of gas right now, and gas in particular, for European consumers, it's what's heating overwhelmingly, it's what's heating European homes in, in winter, it's what's powering industry, uh, uh, because they've been trying to move away from, from, from uh, coal, uh, for instance, and um, the Qataris, you might think, would be delighted, but actually they're they're, they're not rejoicing at this moment of, of sky-high prices. Uh, they fear a backlash on the demand for natural gas. Uh, the energy minister of Qatar recently said that an unhealthy, uh, a, a, a an unhappy customer is a customer that won't buy. So... Uh, any day Qatar would, would would rather have long-term contracts that deliver stable predictable returns over over uh, uh, vol- price volatility which may may deliver you know uh, uh, immediate windfalls but in the long term give LNG give natural gas a bad name and and hastens the transition uh, to renewables. Uh, uh, in 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 the future, so uh, they are in it. The Qataris are in it for the long haul. The Gulf, in general, is in it for the long haul in terms of fossil fuels uh, to to get the most out of it while they can.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Ahmed. I I, I think this is really interesting. In particular, the point you made about uh, gas being the first fuel when it comes to hidden in the European Union and, you know, one of the most used uh, when it comes to power. Uh, Interestingly, because of the prices of gas, now we see a switch to coal in particular in the power system in the European Union, which is, you know, going exactly in the opposite direction of the Green Deal. So. what we're seeing now is that high gas prices are actually um, forcing, in actuality, power companies in the European Union to switch back coal power plants. If we think of Germany, um, there is a mandatory coal phase out by 2038. Uh, given the conditions now, we actually see an expansion of coal usage in Germany over the past nine months. Um, And this is really casting quite a lot of doubts uh, um, with respect to a number of member states in the European Union about the pace of the energy transition. Um, We'll we'll go back to uh, this uh, in particular going forward, not only in the European Union, but actually globally. So what's the impact of the crisis on the emissions reduction ambitions over the world, and also looking at COP in a few weeks' time? But now I'm going to turn to Freddie. to ask you, you've been covering and you cover actually Russia and energy in Russia for Global Council. And I wanted to ask you, Russia is obviously the main exporter uh, of natural gas to the European Union. So um, what should industry and investors actually expect Russia to do
3: going forward? I mean, uh... Georgia, that is, I would say, the million-dollar question that everyone (laughs) is is asking and needs an answer to. Um, And that is why we are are here to talk about it. Yeah, that's why I'm asking you. (laughs) And on on Ahmed's point on Qatar, that was very interesting to hear about about how they're moving to Asia. And and I'll bring this up in a second, but Russia obviously can't really do that as much because they have pipelines. They don't have liquefied national gas, so they send it and their pipeline to wherever they've built the pipeline to. So a lot more structured and on Laila's point about what her discussions on UK, obviously, we need to remember that Russia doesn't actually provide that much gas to the UK. So there's a slightly separate one on that. But on your question about what industry and investors should expect Russia to do on this. So Russia doesn't see this as its problem. Um, It doesn't see it as its fault. It doesn't see it as its responsibility to fix Um, There are various reasons why. I mean, the the main ones is that it's essentially fulfilled the contracts that that were signed by EU leaders uh, in various countries. So they said we would deliver this amount of gas and it was delivered. Um, There's been no complaints about people saying that that certain amount of gas hasn't been delivered. Um, Now, there's a question about whether they should deliver more. And there's certainly been arguments that they can deliver more, but you, you can't you can't expect a company to just increase gas exports out of the goodness of their heart there has to be some sort of quid pro quo. so you can see and understand perhaps that russia doesn't see this as its problem moving forward um but if we're talking a bit about what will happen in the future rather than what's happening right now russia like like ahmed was talking with, with uh qatar it doesn't want to lose the EU as it is its customer of gas. It doesn't, it does it can't afford to do that. It can't go to, it does have some Asia work with China and stuff, but it really does need Europe to buy its gas. So it's not going to be a position. I doubt where Europe will go cold. I don't think there'll be a situation where people will um, be so, without gas, that they'll question the relationship with Russia. Russia needs to be seen as the angel in this uh, that saves Europe from a cold winter, rather than the devil who stops them from getting any gas at all. Um, That being said, there will definitely be conditions that Russia will add to this. Um, You probably expect them to have a requirement on longer term contracts. Uh, maybe there'll be some political statements on support for Nord Stream 2, um, and so on and so forth, so that they're, they're definitely going to leverage the situation um, to the best of their ability, and particularly to make sure that they can continue to supply gas and and also to think about the future as well that they want to be talking about hydrogen, um, and they want to be talking about sort of how they can move forward on oil as well in the future. Um, I mean, one thing we should probably talk about is is Ukraine in this one. So Ukraine had a a meeting with the EU last week. Uh, They had a summit to talk about Nord Stream 2, the the very awkward and controversial pipeline of Europe. And you can imagine what Ukraine said. They were very against Nord Stream 2. Um, Inevitably, they would be because it it undermines their entire energy um, business model. Um, the EU did offer some sort of reassurances on this, but uh, unfortunately for Ukraine, it is, a, it is a sort of minor player in this. Uh, Russia will provide energy and Europe will buy it. Um, there might be some assurances to Ukraine that they won't lose everything and that they can get some supply. Uh, but I, I doubt there'll be much, much beyond that on some major concessions to them. Moving to Nord Stream 2, that awkward Discussion topic for all involved. Will it be something that Russia will exploit for its benefit in this? Yes, it will. It will definitely be looking to get uh, more concessions on it. Uh, it will definitely be looking for more people to rely on, on Nord Stream 2 in the future and get it up and running. But we have to remember that this is something that German regulators are handling. This isn't something the US is handling. This isn't really European Commission's work. So there's very little that um, other countries can do. You know, They can sign a, a gas deal with Bulgaria or Hungary or France or, or whoever, but that's not gonna change the Nord Stream 2 outlet. So I, I wouldn't put too much weight on this idea that Russia's sort of holding out for some sort of miracle um, switch that will turn on Nord Stream 2, and then it will supply gas. Um, but yeah, th- they're the main points. Um, happy to pick up on other stuff uh, as as required yeah thanks so much Freddie. this is
1: uh, there's a lot in fact to unpack um in what you mentioned and i think we'll get to a few of the points uh you raised later on um one very interesting point and i'm coming back to you know my uh you know my home the european union is the you know the possibility that a number of member states uh, uh, have raised to for the European Commission to actually begin exploring the possibility of joint natural gas purchase mechanisms uh, to better negotiate you know uh, with uh, uh, with countries such as Russia in particular. Um, this, as we mentioned earlier on was one of the many issues that the European Commission has raised in the communication that they uh, released yesterday. And uh, my colleague Giovanni and I wrote a note on, on this for our clients. But essentially, the Commission has been under some pressure for a number of weeks now by stakeholders actually pointing to high energy prices as a sign that the energy transition in the the European Union at least is too fast paced. But uh, the commission has been very, very consistent and extremely clear in saying that high energy prices have nothing to do with the EU emissions reduction ambitions and that Europe should actually invest even more in renewable energies and energy efficiency. This was a key point for this commission, in particular when it comes to COP, and to continue positioning the European Union as one of the climate champions. And I wanted to uh, ask you a question, Laila, on this. You know, does the current energy prices risk reflect on the ability of the UK as the host of COP26 to reach meaningful agreements in Glasgow over the past, over the next few weeks?
0: So the short answer is no. And I think that's because the UK government is taking a very similar position to the one you just articulated, the commission is saying, which is basically no the retail the energy market and the dis- difficulties there and the disruption there doesn't prove that we're moving too fast in fact it proves that we need to move a bit faster basically i think there is a question of like how do we counter some of those issues around um the intermittency of uh, renewables and i think in the uk we're seeing um uh, the government look a bit more to nuclear and hydrogen as possible alternatives to that, to that and also carbon capture and how that fits in but fundamentally i think they're very aware because of their convening power at cop and also because of the kind of sectoral net zero strategies they've set out throughout the year that it would be completely counterintuitive now to kind of in argue against their fundamental kind of policy driver um which has been obviously a net zero so so I think actually really what you're going to see is is the, the government and, and particularly the PM kind of pointing to everything that's going on in terms of supply chain disruption have actually pointed to the need for diversification and the fact that net zero can go hand in hand with a diversification of your energy mix and energy sources.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, very interesting. and I think it really completes the picture when it comes also to you know what uh, uh, the role of COP it is and what's supposed to actually mean globally I'll turn to Ahmed on this
2: well just just a quick comment I, mean, I think the, the 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 on the pace of the transition you know what the, the the policymakers in the Gulf uh are saying that this this moment of disruption for consumers, for industry is a symptom of underinvestment and a symptom of the intense lobbying that oil majors uh, have come under, the pressure that they've come under from activist groups, from environmental groups to uh, freeze uh, investments, near-term investments in in the industry. but their their argument is yes we're, we we have nothing against reducing emissions and addressing the climate crisis, but we, we need to protect consumers and um, uh, we need we we have to recognize that renewables haven't yet uh, uh, take, haven't yet taken off in a way that they can pick up the slack from, from hydrocarbons at this time. So it is underinvestment in the industry that is that is now leading to has led to this imbalance between demand and supply. Uh, uh, when you overlay then the strong rebound in in in, in COVID uh, post COVID recovery, that's that's really the the the,
1: the, 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 the price crisis
2: that we're, we're we're experiencing right now is the reflection of that.
1: Yeah, I I, I think we heard in the news uh, last week, I think, and uh, you and I actually talked about it this week. You know, the decision of the uh, UAE. To get to net zero by 2050, um, you know this is uh, this is um, one. Uh, so let me actually turn that into a question: Is this actually something that other countries in the Gulf or in the MENA region are looking at as you know as a potential way forward? That's also helpful for their. You know national decarbonization goals.
2: Obviously, that announcement was uh, headline grabbing. You know, it's the UAE is the third largest uh, oil producer in OPEC: Saudi, Iraq. Then it's the UAE. Um, so uh, you know, as a country that that uh, funds its opera- government operations with oil income, uh, this was a striking announcement, and uh, it it uh, it it caught the headlines. But and 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 the fo- the following day. Uh, uh, UK Prime Minister then, um, you know, had a phone call with the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia and uh, uh, asked him, uh, politely put pressure on him to make a similar announcement for Net Zero 2050 uh, uh, for Saudi, which is obviously the, the the largest oil producer in the world. Uh, but then the Energy Minister of Qatar said, you know, was kind of... Uh, 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 satirizing it and saying you know it's just sexy for these countries to to do net zero 2050 uh, announcements because it, it it's what the, the the media wants to hear it's what the activists want to want to hear and it's what the the the, the biden white house pr- frankly wants to hear um and and if there are no implementable plans behind that then it's just it's just disingenuous and uh and and so that tells you that qatar for instance isn't going to going to be uh Necessarily making announcement of that of that scale uh, uh, prior prior to COP twenty six. So in 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 reality, it's not really a benchmark when you hear a country announcing that uh, that 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 target. Uh, the UAE will continue to invest heavily. They have a hundred and twenty two billion dollar plan to invest in their uh, oil production to increase. Uh, output from 4 million barrels a day to 5 million barrels a day in the next 5 years so it shows you where their economic priorities uh, are uh, but it's 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 uh, that's not to say that's not take away anything away from the UAE's efforts in really becoming renewable leaders and they are the renewable leaders in the region undoubtedly they have um, uh, the sovereign wealth fund mubadala Right, you know, throwing their weight right behind that effort, uh, investing domestically in in in, in solar capacity and nuclear. As a matter of fact, but also investing in partnership with the UK on on uh, the recharging, a uh, battery recharging uh, infrastructure within the UK. They have an investment partnership on that, and finally on hydrogen, blue and blue and green hydrogen is really where the UAE and Saudi are, Saudi are vying to be global powerhouses, and uh, they, they they have the the technical capacity already with the oil and gas industry to, to, to make that achievable. So, you know, that, that, that would be my, my take on this.
3: I, I agree, Amir. I think yeah. with, with the situation going on with Russia, it's exactly the same. Is that, that they're looking for the next big uh, energy thing. I mean, countries like um, UAE and Qatar and, and Russia are all the same in as much as that they've, they've managed to get customers for energy and they don't want to lose it when this situation ends. Because I mean, if we bring this back to the gas crisis that we're talking about, to many, this sounds like kind of advantage to countries that produce energy, but it's not really an advantage, it's more a symptom of a system that is going through immense change right now. We look at the reasons why the gas crisis is actually happening, a lot of them are due to the fact that there's renewables coming on, and there's a lack of gas storage happening. So it's a transitioning market that we're seeing. And that's what really kind of scares and keeps Russia up at night is that it wants to make sure that it's on the right side of the transition that it can provide whatever the best um, energy product is in the future because they need to keep that con- that customer base and I, I think unlike in, in Qatar or-, or UAE's approach as-, as I mentioned earlier we've got pipelines going from Russia to the Europe which you can't just get rid of or move so you've got to find something to put through them it could be anything but If we can put hydrogen through it, then that's fantastic. So there's definitely going to be a race going on for making sure that that these countries provide the energy that Europe needs in the future, whatever it will be.
0: And I was just going to come in. I think that's exactly why some people are skeptical of hydrogen as a fuel, because they see it as a way to entrench some of these existing interests, both in the sort of oil and gas majors and in, in countries rather than a genuine way to decarbonize. Clearly, it can be both, and it probably is both, but you're increasingly going to see this pitched battle between electrification, which countries can kind of, well, particularly, um, you know, some of the EU member states and the UK can begin to do by itself versus, um, you know, by investing in renewables versus um, hydrogen, where we are probably going to still require some of those existing supply chains, both in terms of our you know national grid in the uk but also the the pipelines that go from russia so it's it's interesting and i think actually a lot of the the gas crisis that we're experiencing at the minute speaks to the fact that this is going to become more of a tense battleground as 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 we go forward um, in this sort of net zero transition um period
3: but Lila, i have a question actually on on that that i've been meaning to ask you for a while actually we as i mentioned earlier we've got the fact that russia doesn't actually provide that much gas to to uk it does to europe and not as much about i think it's about five percent to uk so do you think that's a genuine fear that the government has that that if they move to hydrogen that russia will sort of ramp up its hydrogen dependency when they've weaned themselves off russian gas
0: so no because i think the uk believes wrongly or rightly that they can unsure a lot of hydrogen production through particularly green hydrogen production through their expansion of um offshore wind and the use of the electrolyzers to to fund that and, and i think they think that you know some of the oil and gas me- majors um in Scotland for example can, can tr- equally transition to the production of hydrogen with carbon capture so i think the uk has a has a large amount of faith in its own abilities to to onshore hydrogen production um which we'll we'll see i mean they still haven't committed nearly as much money to it as germany Um,
1: Yeah, I think that's the point about hydrogen uh, is a very interesting one. And I think it goes back to this, you know, gas prices crisis points to the relevance now of actual natural gas and the dependence on natural gas across the world in actuality. Um, and of course, you know hydrogen blue and green uh is basically seen by most of the gas I- I- industry as a way to uh you know convert and you know repurpose the billions of infrastructural investments uh which have been put over the decades and years um, into gas and I was wondering if you look at Russia in particular. Freddie. And I'll get to you on this also, Ahmed. Um, How how realistic is for Russia to, you know, invest heavily in uh, hydrogen and actually, you know, brand itself as the new uh, hydrogen hub, both green and blue for the
3: world? It already has actually branded itself as the mm-hmm. as the hydrogen leader um it's sort of putting out wild statements about owning sort of 30 percent of the hydrogen market in the future and so on and so forth i mean uh georgia you you missed the number one uh type of hydrogen which is the yellow hydrogen which comes from nuclear power <laughs> nuclear. right uh, which as we know that russia has a uh supply of of nuclear power stations which uh, as we know nuclear kind of carries on so if you can move that towards hydrogen production then you can but to answer your question yes they are pushing to be it whether they have the capacity of the middle east and the organizational structure to create this sort of level of ability we will see um would i would i be surprised if russia started a massive movement of burning gas or oil to produce hydrogen and just pump that into europe and europe just takes it no, I think that would probably be quite likely. Mm-hmm. If there was a demand, Europe needed hydrogen, Russia could provide it. Let's just ignore the fact it all comes from fossil fuels, then fine. Um, but it depends if there's demand. It really, if, Russia, if someone can provide Europe with hydrogen, if it's a small market, then that's fine. If, if, but if every German bus needs hydrogen then yeah Russia will provide it mm. it just might come from a rather awkward situation I, but I was going to bring this quickly back to the to the gas crisis we have now because I think it's a really interesting point that Lila and, and Ahmed have been talking about which is that I've been speaking to some, some of our, our contacts in this and and people who work in the energy market and people who work in the more sort of um, green energy and, and encouraging that and what they both agree on is that this kind of crisis is going to happen more often in the future um, they disagree about what the solution is. Some would say we need to kind of stabilize the market and go slower. Some say we need to just kind of keep pushing through and get faster towards energy transition. But th- the idea is that this is this is just the beginning of a situation where we will find fluctuating prices and energy um, as we go through a radical rehaul uh, of the energy market that we've never seen before. Um, I would say that's an un- maybe an overstatement, but Lila and Affmed can come in on that one. Um, but th- this is something that I think I think we're going to see more in the future. Oh.
1: But just on this, maybe, because I think that, um, you know, one of the considerations that we've, uh, we've, uh, we've made by analyzing the s- situation is that, you know, much of the cause for this gas crisis is, you know, the recovery. And essentially, it, it goes back to the demand and supply balance. so uh, are we saying that we're gonna see you know imbalances between demand and supply even without uh, a global pandemic going forward or is this uh, going back to uh, other other factors in, in the market? and this is also a question for Lila and Ahmed of course.
2: I think, you know, the, the unfortunately for the energy transition, 2022 is projected to be one of the worst years on record in terms of carbon emissions, in terms of uh, uh, b- burning the, the, those dirty fuels uh, because of this strong recovery from COVID and because of the pent-up demand that, that COVID uh, created. Uh, so it's a setback in that sense. Uh, from, from, for oil and gas uh, producers, it's an amazing change in fortunes. Uh, when, when you look at uh, energy prices last year and how they tanked, uh, you had dispute in OPEC. You had, uh, obviously, a crash in demand because, because economies were coming under under lockdown. Oil prices, for instance, in the U.S., the U.S. benchmark went below negative. Uh, uh, Brent Brent was so low that, you know, there was a risk that Gulf states couldn't pay the salaries in the public sector and would would default on their debt and so on. Um, And there was a concern about uh, too much uh, gas, a glut in gas supply and how how depressed these prices will be for such a long time. And there's so many projects, Australia, Mozambique, East Africa, uh, uh, Qatar, Russia, they're all wrapping up output and there's going to be oversupply. To now, where Qatar is actually saying we're maxed out, we can't cater to 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 everyone. Uh, we, there's satellite imagery of of tankers, vessels queuing up, export terminals, uh, uh, for 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 gas shipments. You know, and and and, and it's, it's it's back order. So uh, and now the prices are, have skyrocketed. So it's it's these the the the, the risk of. Uh, uh, These crises recurring. I I really think this is a a momentary. It's a temporal uh, uh, crisis. I think there's there's uh, shale will come back. Shale is is investing. The U S is coming back uh, as an industry. They've they've sorted up sorted out some of their cash flow issues. Qatar is is forging full steam ahead. Uh, Russia is doing the same. Uh, uh, Australia now that now that their economies are rebalancing post COVID they will have the resources to reinvest in these projects and they will become more economic. Uh, so I think there will be there will be but but on the consumer side I think there will be uh, uh, a recognition that relying on spot spot market and relying on on uh, uh, leverage uh, lower prices and and staying away from from these long term contracts is very risky politically. It's very risky for the consumer, for the welfare of citizens in the European Union. And they will be thinking twice about uh, uh, saying no to that long-term contract that Qatar is trying to uh, uh, sell or Russia is trying to sell. Uh, That will be, I think, the the, uh, negotiating dynamic between the producers and the consumers.
0: Yeah, I really agree with everything Ahmed said. Particularly, I think basically what we're getting at is that the change will be the question around resilience and and that's the sort of long-term shift in mentality I agree I think it's a short reasonably short-term issue I mean the problem in the UK is it's tied up in some other supply chain issues and commodity pricing issues but but I think it's reasonably short-term but it's going to make um the UK government I think in particular think about um, given that we are thinking about this huge transition, how do we encourage greater resilience in the market and particularly the domestic market where we thought we'd solved everything through having an energy price cap? You know, clearly that, that hasn't been sufficient. So what 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 kind of regulation do we need to be introducing into the retail energy ma- market to ensure that people aren't just making these quite, um, and providers and utilities aren't just making these quite short-term decisions um, and basically ineffectively hed- hedging um, and I think I think that's what it's revealed that, that actually what you had in the UK was a very um, not not particularly resilient um, retail energy market.
1: Yeah, I think that this is a very fair uh, c- consideration. Um, you know, hedging. I think it's been uh, you know indicated as one of the best ways to uh, avoid these crises. But you know, n- number one, um, it's not always possible to actually. Hedge that far into yeah. to the future, and 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 two, most importantly, hedging actually comes with a cost. So you basically have to balance the opportunity uh, with the cost. Ah, 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 Ahmed, you wanted to also come in on this. Um, I, I
2: no, I mean, I was, I was, I was interesting. I mean, it, it's interesting. The U, the U.S. Actually, we haven't talked much about the U.S. Uh, perspective on this. You know, um, from the Gulf. Gulf point of view, the U.S. is is a is a player that was kind of a curveball because uh, it was a sleeping giant. You know, uh, the U.S. was a major net importer uh, of, of of energy, and now they're net exporters. And uh, the shale revolution and and, and that transformation, um, a, 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 but but COVID really battered battered that industry. It will be um, interesting to to just see how the U.S. rebounds as 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 an exporter. Uh, now that you have uh, someone in the White House, a president that that is prioritizing addressing the, the, the climate crisis, how how domestically uh, will the U.S. continue to eclipse Saudi Arabia as the swing oil producer? Um, and and let's not forget the U.S. has ambitions to, to take market share away
1: from Russia. When you say swing for our listeners, what do you mean by that?
2: Well, in terms of in terms of just barrels of oil, the volume that the the U.S. is able today to produce because of because of the, the, the shale deposits, the sheer shale scale of the deposits there, uh, has eclipsed eclipsed what Saudi Arabia uh, is, is 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 capable of producing on a day-to-day basis. Of course, it it, it fluctuates, um, uh, but uh, that the U.S. is now the global swing producer when it comes to, to oil. Uh, at least at least in oil but uh, the point i was trying to make is in terms of in terms of the dynamics with europe um, they want to take market share away from from russia and the gulf producers they want they want to be able to sell li- liquefied natural gas because of because of uh, uh, the way that, that that fuel can be shipped uh, it'll be interesting to to uh, you know you saw the national security advisor jake sullivan uh, speak with the russians and say you know we warn you against weaponizing natural gas politicizing natural gas uh, it has caused problems in the past, vis-a-vis Ukraine, and uh, is not something that Russia should be engaged with. But it sounds like, you know, Friendly was saying that Russia is actually distancing themselves from that conversation. That really, this, this, there's no foul play whatsoever on, on, on Russia's, uh, uh, Russia's part.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. I'm going to try and wrap up the wealth of information that we've shared up until now, um, I'm going to say three things. Number one is that though energy prices are expected to go back to normal next year, uh, there, we, we don't know for how long, but there's no sign the current situation will ease before at least, you know, spring next year. So businesses are really going to be faced with high energy prices for some time now, with consequences along value chains and on retail supplies and prices as well. Um, Number two, I would say that governments around the world uh, are set to continue supporting end consumers, um, though the outlook for, you know, businesses in particular varies across jurisdiction so we heard from Laila that the government in the UK has been reticent to you know support too much uh, the you know businesses and in particular there have been a number of energy companies which actually went bust Uh, whilst on the other you know opposite of uh, the spectrum you have the European Union and European member states who have been actually encouraged by the commission to assist businesses with money, with actually resources. And as third, whilst uh, high energy gas prices are seen by some as an indication of the need to invest in renewable energy, we had this this conversation on both the Gulf and also Russia, um, the same high prices are leading a, a number of countries also casting doubts on the pace of the energy transition and on the business opportunity for renewable energy and clean tech uh, companies. So, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. As always, if you your business or your investment is exposed to high energy prices, do, do get in touch with us. Uh, you can find contact details for our speakers and our sectorial teams on the GC website or via the link in the podcast notes. So thank you very, very much, Laila, Ahmed, I'm Freddie, and thank you all for tuning in.
0: For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com, and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global-council.